0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Thank you all for staying around for this this um, post-screening conversation with two people who were centrally involved in the restoration of the film. I just want to briefly introduce them. Uh, to you. Uh, on my far left is Tom Pollack, who served as vice chairman and executive vice president of MCA and chairman of the motion picture groups at Universal Pictures uh, from 1986 to 1996, a 10 year period. And um, during this de- decade, uh, Tom was very active in um, thinking about the ways in which um, the commercial motion picture industry could connect up with um, other aspects of film culture. I think probably dating back to your first experiences with the American Film Institute uh, prior, for that, uh, prior to that um, executive post. Um, and since uh, 1998, uh, some of you may know that with producer and director Ivan Reitman, uh, Tom um, has been uh, working at the, uh, founded and is working at the Mo- Montecito Picture Company. Um, and uh, one of the films that that company has produced over the years is a biopic of Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcock with uh, Anthony Perkins and, and Helen Mirren. Hopkins. Uh, I, I, that's right, <laughs> Hopkins, which we showed here um, uh, at the Pollock Theatre in, uh, in 2012. He's also, um, happily for me, uh, a, a founding member of the advisory board of the Christie wolf Center and a great friend of this campus. Um, uh, he was an adjunct professor here. Um, in the mid-90s when I was chairing the film uh, studies department and um, uh, taught uh, several courses on business of the movies which led to um, students whom he mentored going on to have um, careers in various aspects of the motion picture industry including a few in film preservation. Um, And We also can certainly thank Tom for his vital role in the planning and the building of this beautiful theater where we've just had an opportunity to see um, uh, uh, this restoration project um, uh, in uh, in in glorious form, um, and we're also very lucky to have today um, James Katz, uh, uh, who um, along with Robert Harris was principally responsible for um, this extraordinary project. He's a film producer, a film historian, and preservationist, and I think among the first generation of motion picture executives to understand the cultural importance of studio archival holdings, where I think this is perhaps where he and Tom came together. Um, As the founder and head of the Universal Pictures Classics Division, he pioneered the concept of using studio classics as a division uh, through which to produce new works, including John Huston's adaptation of Under the Volcano, and to import art films from different parts of the world into the U.S., Uh, While serving as president of of Universal Classic, he oversaw the successful reissue of five Hitchcock films. Uh, These were released in 1983 and 1984, uh, uh, which had not been seen for quite a few years. And with his partner, Robert Harris, um, completed a series of major restoration projects, including Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus, uh, George Cooker's adaptation of the Lerner and Lowe musical, My Fair Lady, um, and rear window uh, after uh, completion of this project, um, Vertigo. Um, I thought we might get uh, uh, started here um, by just asking you both about the origins of the restoration project itself. Every restoration project <laughs> is complicated, but this one seemed to have legal, financial, as well as technical problems.
2: I'll start, because you'll talk about the restoration. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, um, we were talking about this earlier um, Robert Harris had restored the first big restoration i'd seen was Lawrence of Arabia one of the great movies that had gone to pieces and the restoration was done by columbia pictures and it was magnificent uh the shots that you know that that david lean did that had gone into disrepair just were, were stupendous and um, I I asked uh, Robert and Jim to do Spartacus uh, for us at Universal which was probably the only epic picture in the Universal library something with large battles and uh, was uh, a, a great story unto itself, but again, a, a wonderful restoration that that they produced and did. It cost cost a lot of money. Um, the studio had a limited amount of money for film restoration, uh, for film preservation at all. Uh, that's a whole other issue, because uh, no, all the films that have been lost, the films that were made on nitrate film, I wouldn't, don't even want to go into. Half of them, they say, have that were made were lost, and of the others that aren't under copyright, the orphan films, no one has any financial interest in taking care of. Anyway, um, no one knew that films had value uh, before. They started to be sold to television and then to cassettes and stuff. Anyway, after that, I had gotten a call from Marty Scorsese, whose favorite film is Vertigo. And the the license that uh, Jim had originally uh, done with the Hitchcock estate was about to run out. We had to renegotiate it. Um, with Pat Hitchcock, his daughter, and the the others make a deal. It was easier than it would have, I'm sure it was for you as well, because the chairman of Universal, Lou Wasserman, was uh, also Hitchcock's agent and probably his best friend um, throughout his career in the United States and and afterwards. Anyway, uh, the obvious choice to do it were, you know, the people who do it best, and they are the people who did it best. So that that was the origin, and uh, I mean, I still I've been, I've seen Vertigo maybe forty times, which probably not as much as you've seen it, but it still works really well, and, and even the corny parts work well because it's just. <laughs>
0: Well, Hitchcock called it a hoax, you know. Yeah. He called the film, uh, the, the actual vertigo, uh, the first half as a hoax. And then he, he said that he gave away the ending, and the only one who didn't know how it was going to end was Jimmy Stewart. And uh, he prided himself in that. And uh, there's there every time I see the film, you see... Something else mm-hmm. that's brilliant, and then some other one. You just go, oh, you know.
2: Well, it never was a po- it never was a, a financial success, because in fact it isn't a mystery for the reasons that uh, to, it's about obsession. Obviously, it's about Jimmy Stewart's obsession, and uh, I think it's the best role he ever played yeah, uh, by far. And I I don't know that there's ever been a character more obsessed than uh, than. Scotty Ferguson with uh, with Carlotta Valdez.
0: But Hitch, it, you know, uh, I could say one thing. After this ended, you know, there was another ending that was um, uh, added on to to, to this, and uh, it was sort of, it was pretty corny in itself. And the legend or the uh, the, the was that um, Hitchcock agreed because. Uh, Somehow, uh, Gavin Elster, had there had to be retribution there, and we had to see that he got caught. And uh, they blamed it on the foreign censors, but it was really a, a fellow named Jeffrey Sherlock, who was an American censor.
2: A villain in our movie, Hitchcock. <laughs> yes,
0: and lots of Hitchcock. And, he, uh, and, and you could see his marks all over it. I mean, the scene where he has her in his bed, and um, he's undressed her after she's come out of the bay, and you see what she was wearing hanging on that clothesline, I mean, you'd think some 250-pound grandma was in that bed. (laughs) Uh, You weren't allowed to see any of uh, her underwear or anything that was representative of all of what he he took off. And then at the end, uh, which I don't even know if you know this, Tom, but we found the... um, the dialogue for the this ending, the super ending, and what it was uh, was a uh, it was back in Midge's apartment, and he's walking in, and she's got the radio on, and uh, they're telling um, the the broadcaster was uh, saying that um, they've caught Gavin Elster in Europe, and they're extraditing him to the United States, and it was part of a news broadcast. And uh, then there was a joke at the end uh, when they went on to another story about a cow being led up the steps at UC. Berkeley. And anyway, it was sort of silly dialogue. <laughs> and we couldn't find the soundtrack for that because um, I don't know, we, we, it was just a uh, discarded scene after. So if you ever see it on any of the collections, you'll hear Bob and my voice on the radio. Mm-hmm. And, and we voiced that last... That last yeah, we,
2: I, we, we once thought of trying to remake Suspicion, not because it's a remake, but because they made him change the end. Did you show it in your expanded Hitchcock series? What, Chuck, the, that Chuck did no, to, we haven't shown that, no. It, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's a movie where you never know whether Cary Grant is trying to poison Joan Fontaine, I mean, kill his wife Joan Fontaine or not. Um, and they and, had two different endings for it. Well, yes, they made him the, the same censors uh, um, made him change the ending, um, and the studio RKO because uh, Kerry Rat couldn't possibly be a killer. He has to be a good guy, yeah, yeah. so he does not kill her, which is not the ending that uh, that Hitchcock wanted. But that's another Hitchcock Well, let's talk
1: we? about that stage then when you've now had the opportunity to research all the different versions and the, the footage and find out, I guess, first of all, whether it's possible to do a restoration or not. Um, what were the discoveries along the way that shaped the process?
0: Well, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. It's like opening a Pandora's box. I mean, you never know what you're going to find. And there's so many old wives' tales associated with, especially someone like Hitchcock, and also the meaning of scenes and... And such, and I, 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 um, I can digress a second and, and tell you, I had a, uh, I went, I'm a grad, I went to Ohio State, and um, we had a, uh, a lecture uh, at one time, about 1956, uh, 57, that Robert Frost came to the school, and uh, he gave a lecture on a, in a on a course on his poetry. And somebody asked him uh, how many meanings his poetry had. And he said, uh, well, the first meaning is we actually bent birches to and fro. That actually happened. And you could tell a little bit about my uh, life in New England from from my poetry. He said, but I leave my, the third and fourth uh, me, you know, uh, meanings to usually high school English teachers because they're really the best. <laughs> they're really the best at interpreting this. <laughs> so uh, this was a sort of thing with with Hitchcock because uh, there's been so much written about it and so much uh, so many people see so many different things in it I mean you can go from Chris Marker to Dave Kerr to all these these people and and, uh, it's I don't know what you have to do to say you're an expert on something Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of Hitchcock experts out there and then there's Donald Spoto who sort of ripped him a little bit in the books and and um, you know, so you uh, and, and even I guess uh, the latest Tippy Hedron book. You know, so you get a lot of different, different takes on this. And I might say in, in context there that Kim Novak loved Hitchcock. Uh, my wife and I traveled with her a bit uh, after the um, uh, restoration we did in '96. And all she talked about was how, how great he was, and how he helped her with the dialogue, and how they used a metronome for the, lev- the the pace of her speech and everything, and how much confidence he gave her. And so, you know, there's horses for courses, as the Brits say. You know, you get you get both ends of the spectrum, but you do. you never know what you're going to find, and you never know where you're going to find it. And uh, I can tell a few stories about. How uh, when we started to look for tracks, we found some of the the cans were in what we what's it Blue Mountain or something? Yeah, it's, it's, in,
2: a, it's in a cave in the uh, it's, Adirondacks. It,
0: it was all over the place. There were there were some in the salt mines, some in the Adirondacks, some some in the ba- in the in the uh, vaulted Paramount that were mismarked, and you have to open every single can. And if they have Vertigo and some other film, "You better open vertigo," and the other film and on what's on both sides, because you know, they, they, they went to the storage where it was 100 degrees during the day and 50 degrees at night, and, you, and it, which is not good for anything, people included mm. uh, uh, to have cha- temperature changes like that. And subsequently, we found a- everything and anything we, we thought we could use. Also, we found the original music tracks, and they were interesting because they were uh, the, this, the, the film started to it started scoring at Paramount, and then there was a there was a musician strike in the middle of it all, so they moved uh, Hitchcock moved the um, scoring to London, and Muir Matheson, uh, famous. British conductor in the London, London Symphony, I think it was, uh, continued recording the tracks. And then they decided they were going to sympathize with the musicians in the U.S., so they wouldn't work anymore. And they took the, took the, the tracks and the, and the score and everything to Vienna, and the Vienna Symphony finished the score.
2: But with the same conductor.
0: Uh, yes, I yeah. think the, the same conductor
2: one of the only Hitchcock films I've seen that, where the conductor got a credit equal to Bernard Herrmann.
0: Yeah, which uh, <laughs> was, was pretty... And, by, and this movie without
2: that score, you know, it's like, it's like the Psycho movie without the Bernard Herrmann score. It just wouldn't play. It wouldn't work at all.
0: But one, you know, one thing leads to another, and we find these scores, and, and there's damage on the tracks. The orig- this is the original MAG tracks. And we're holding our fingers on... The film, the, the track, as it's going through the um, movie and uh, it's you know, cause it, and and you have to hold it at a certain, I mean, level and do it, and oh, and you can, and you may have one or maybe two chances to do it before the emulsion peels off. So you, they're hold, we're holding it, and you just don't want to hear that wah wah, you know, and mm-hmm. you know you've ruined a whole scene. So we get through that. And uh, uh, we get to the point where we're actually, you know, trying to... You know, I, I can say, just to digress for a second, you know, you, you work on picture for months, and then you have to work on this, the tracks, and you don't really see them together until maybe, in this case, maybe four months into, uh, into the... Um,
2: Process. And the effects that you had to redo. <laughs> well, this is what
0: happens. So when, when we digitized the tracks, the music and dialogue tracks, you lose the upper and lower registers on them. They just It's just not enough room going through. So you lose the foley, and you lose part of the effects track. And the foley of the doors slamming and, and people walking and all these things. So... Uh, we had to actually refoley, like as if it were a new movie, the exact uh, effects, Foley and effects of the original film. So when you do that, and, and there are unbelievable notes that Hitchcock made, and all of the, the people who uh, who worked on the film, they were trim- we weren't, you know, going willy nilly out here. We were we were following the same directions that the people on the board back in 1957 and 58 did. And we went through there, and um, should I get into this controversial duck quack? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Up to you. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we we um, we we got the effect. We did the effects, and uh, the track was as I mean, it was incredible. Uh, then we because you know the the original mono track was. Uh, the the the, tr- the sound itself didn't keep up with the delivery systems. The speakers and everything that were in 1996 were way ahead mm-hmm. of the the tracks that were uh, recorded in 1957. So uh, you know we had to deal with that, and we had these enormous these, these enormously uh, beautiful tracks, and even uh, there was there was some. People complaining from the Bernard Herman estate came to us and said, "Listen, you know it, it doesn 't sound right it doesn 't sound like it did And what they were doing was hearing instruments and nuances that were uh, they could never hear before on the, on the tracks and the delivery systems that they have at the time so you 're always finding all of these things. We found picture uh, that was um, uh, some, there were some scenes that were so they were just so hard to do. The the scene in the Argosy bookshop, where the the where for some reason Hitchcock thought it was a great idea for um, the room to go darker and darker and darker, and, and then they walk out into the daylight again, and you can read volumes on why he did that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the scene where she's coming out of the out of the bathroom in the hotel. Yeah, uh, you know, these are. These were really nightmares, uh, as far as restorations were concerned mm. and I might say that what you saw today was a thirty five millimeter of the seventy millimeter that we did uh, that we restored so if you see the seventy millimeter it's it 's bigger and, and and sharper and and uh, uh, an experience, a really interesting experience. How many
2: VistaVision projectors are there mm. in the world today? Probably two, yeah. I don't know.
1: Well, it's one of the things you've said uh, in several interviews, you mentioned it before today, Jim, and that is that um, uh, the, the restoration version that you produced um, looks better than the original uh, version mm. of it, better than anything that Hitchcock saw, right? Yeah. And mm. maybe you could just describe a little bit about VistaVision and how that worked and what that gave you as restorers in order to produce the images that you did.
0: Actually, I brought a piece of VistaVision. If you're afterward. I can show it to you outside. But uh, VistaVision was a double frame 35. It was 35 millimeter, but two frames. So and it went through the camera right to left. It went this way. It's almost like a precursor to IMAX, which is a 70 millimeter horizontal. So uh, when you when you when you see that. Uh, double frame, that in, in film uh, lore is considered large format. And large format is usually considered 70 millimeter. But because this was a double frame 35, uh, that was considered large format as well. And uh, it was a very sharp image. They used it a lot for rear screen projections. And it was just a very sharp way of of doing, of of doing um, background in a um, thirty-five mm-hmm. format, and then they would just print it thirty-five. What we did was, we took the VistaVision, which was a one-eight-five aspect ratio, which is a pretty standard aspect ratio, which was Vertigo was shot in, and we were able to turn it onto a thirty-five millimeter strip, and I have some of those here too, and then we would mat we mat, matted the outside but it gave us a lot of latitude for, um, uh, as far as uh, sharpness and, and um, uh, uh, color were concerned. And when, because we did this, and I, I must say that, that Vertigo and Spartacus, and, and Lawrence for that matter, were all done photochemically because it was the Dark Ages. There was no digital. They, you know, digital sort of changed the landscape. But it wasn't. Uh, it, it, it's, got, it's got its pluses and it's got its minuses, as far as I'm concerned. But we did it all photochemically, and the biggest problem was because it was shrinkage on the separations and on the negative. And we made we did the restoration by using the color separations, which were made it black and white, and they're made the last thing that, that, that are made is made uh, that are made before it goes into storage, and it's a it's a reference.
2: I have a question to ask you. Um, Hitchcock, I think Rope was the first of the five, but when Wasserman made his deals, he was, Hitchcock was a powerful enough director that he got to own the copyright in his movies, and after a short term of distribution, the rights all reverted to him, and then when he died, to his estate. Um,
0: I don't think Topaz and Family Plot and those... I don't no, know.
2: no, and, and, and the others, they weren't. But the question was... because they didn't
0: deal with you. No, no that was... <laughs> uh, that was it's,
2: that, that's a different issue. The, the question is, uh, to fight so hard to get the ownership, why in the world didn't he preserve his own work? He knows what was happening to the negatives of that film...
0: Well, I don't, know whether he, I don't know whether he did. I mean, because, you know, there's a famous story about Hitchcock when he was, he was sitting on, I think it was Rear Window on some, on some set, and they, were, they had this enormous set at Paramount. It was that like four-story building and everything across, because he shot everything in the studio, which are other stories uh, that are incredible stories about the lengths he went to to shoot in a studio. But he was sitting there in the corner, and some, and some press person went up and said, well, what are you thinking about? And he said, uh, well, I'm thinking about my next film. <laughs> and uh, I said, what do you mean? He said, I've already made this. You know, he did his own sketches for sets. He did his own. He wrote his own script. And, and he would just sit there, and he would, he would be on to the next one. And I don't mm. think he was ever thinking about what was going to happen.
2: I, I think it's because yeah. there, no, there was no use for movies, yeah, as exactly. I said, until... They started selling them to television in yeah. the 50s. And, oh, yeah, movies, oh. They, they, a, weren't, they weren't something you saw again. You saw them once and you put it away. It wasn't like a book that you put in a library. Until VHS. Until yeah. until cassettes came along, yeah. or, or, or tape, videotapes came along. And
0: there were a lot of theaters that ran those terrible prints of things. You know, you'd see... oh so sixteen 16-millimeter prints, know, yeah, this, yeah. You'd see a face shut, you know, the whole piece of emulsion scrape But out a it. lot
2: of the a lot of the materials were were in beacon storage right <laughs> in hollywood where they're just negative materials that just not not in the caves in the adirondacks where the studios yeah. keep their their negative material nitrate and acetate well most of it's been there isn't much nitrate left but um,
0: they're all it, at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Believe it <laughs> or not, they're underground. But but
2: even but as they, and digital has its own preservation problems. But we don't need to go into. But um, it's to be sitting in a storage bo- in, in a box at beacons on Santa Monica Boulevard yeah. and Western, mm-hmm. just sitting there for years, yeah. decaying. It's and they're his. It's like, uh, every yeah, every director yeah. thinks of this the movies as their children. Well, I think they thought. <laughs> they thought <laughs> I, I think
0: they thought more in terms of of maybe the intellectual rights. You know that they own the story and they own the, mm. you know, whatever. I don't know what they because you know the biggest pain, and I've produced you know a number of movies, and you're doing as as well as you do. The last thing you, you think about is okay, sure, we'll keep it, keep the prints at the at the. Now it's different because the the uh, preservation materials are, are are certainly a digital master. They're yeah. digital masters. They weren't like. You know, ten cans of, of film, and the first thing they say is, "Well, let's let's get these out of here and get them into the into storage because there's always new stuff coming along. Mm. So uh, it, you just want to get it out of there, and you want to get and, and since, because it's so focused, you want to get on to the next project, mm. and that's what happens. And then it ends up in these warehouses, and it's uh, it, it's he wasn't alone.
2: Well, but he, he was one of the few directors mm-hmm. who actually owned the movies that he made it's a you get paid you work for the studio they own it yeah he ended I mean that's very few had that power well he so gave, why
1: not care for the physical materials well he didn't yeah. he didn't
2: he, he, he didn't and until less. the rest these restorations happened yeah. um, they they, uh, they wouldn't be here you wouldn't you uh, certainly you would not be able to see Vertigo like this in
0: 1984 we, we found these uh, I, I knew Universal was negotiating with, uh, with the Hitchcock family who owned Rear Window and Vertigo, Man Who Knew Too Much Trouble with Harry and Rope, those five films, and they were negotiating with them to buy them for television and Lou Wasserman was very involved in, in those films and uh, it was a long drawn out negotiation and when I started the classics division I really thought that we could we could tap into those because those films hadn't been seen in a theatre in yeah. 17 years, I think it was. And subsequently, we got the rights to do it, but then we had to put prints together. And we would... I mean, there were a lot of old-time editors at the studio at the time who were still still there in the uh, uh, late 70s, early 80s, and they would really painstakingly get 10 prints together and maybe get one or two out of it. And then once you got had a positive you could go to an inner negative and then back to an inner positive and and and, uh, and you'd be able to print new prints out off of whatever elements you put together. And what, it was What year was Spartacus? When it was made? No, no, no. What, oh, the restoration? The restoration
2: 91?
0: The race, no, the restoration on Spartacus was yeah, 91. Yeah. That's when
2: we were renegotiating the extension of the deal with Hitchcock estate, mm-hmm. which was not for all rights, it was limited um, and Spartacus had cost a lot of money it cost over a million and a half dollars mm-hmm. to restore for all sorts of reasons that that Jim could go into, mm-hmm. but it was and we would not have made, as I said, there's a limited budget for all of this. I was saved by that same Tom Wertheimer you were mentioning Mm -hmm. who managed to sell it to ABC television Mm -hmm. for one run, the the restored version, which got enough money to pay off all the costs of it and show to Lou Wasserman that there was a way to make money from a restoration. That, as I was trying to make the, make the deal with the estate and not getting anywhere where we could actually put money into the restorations of, of, of these movies, he stepped in once he saw that that could be done and he made it all happen because he had the relationship with Pat Hitchcock. Um, and lo and behold... Um, Universal got the distribution, still has the distribution rights, mm-hmm. and under, under a deal that in, encourages them to put money into the restoration of it. And uh, I know they did Rewindo. I don't know whether they did any of the other three.
0: No, uh, the 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 thing is, you know, when you when you go to a studio and back then, uh, you know, and I I really have to say, you know, if it weren't for Tom, uh, Don Steele for first and Tom. Over a period of time, uh, doing Spartacus and doing vertigo was they were, he, he was the first studio executive to sort of put his money where his mouth was. you know He was a big film buff and a big film fan but and realized that it was going to be expensive to do this, but there was there were uh, uh, places to to show it and see it and and back when we did the films in... In in '84, uh, nobody thought they would do anything, and they did an unbelievable deal with the with the Hitchcock estate. I think they got something like 30% so thirty percent of the growth.
2: Thirty percent, most thirty percent for uh, you, no, it was a distribution fee, and then the estate got yeah. the rest.
0: And they got and they made a ton of money. I yeah. mean, a ton of money, because nobody thought that it was going to. I think it did fifty-five or sixty million dollars on those five films. In you know, over a, a period of time, and back then that was really a lot of money for a reasonably low output. Well, so now they're
2: still they're still earning it because obviously there's a hundred ways to distribute yeah, movies the, now. And the, and you the, can stream them, you can do anything. so long as they're under copyright. You can do, you can make money. There is there's money to be made in actually doing good by restoring films, mm-hmm. so long as they're under copyright, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the pro- there's a big problem with what they call orphan films—films films that, that were literally the copyrights ran out and nobody bothered to renew them. The most famous one being *It's a Wonderful Life*, yeah. um, which was not a hit, and Columbia that made it just sort of let the copyright lapse, and, you know, now it's. It's a perennial at Christmas and New Year's. Well, it was actually
1: an independent production by Capra mm-hmm. and that fell into the public domain because yep. of that. Yeah. But and, it was, there's, there's and then a, got picked up by television stations and got shown at Christmas time. There's a big appetite cheap. now
0: for yeah. Yeah. for content. I right. mean, it's, it's just you can't get enough into all the right. sort and all the outlets that, that right. are exist now. But right. when we went to Tom uh, with with Spartacus uh, and and with with uh, Vertigo. We had to find... We were working on the techniques because, we, as I said, we did them photochemically and there was shrinkage in the negative. And when you have shrinkage in the negative, you get three colors. You know, you, you can see the, the colors uh, of the various layers um, going into the actual image. So it wasn't really... We, we really had to solve that problem. And the bigger we made it, the more... Visual, the more um, uh, obvious the, the, the flaws were. Mm-hmm. But we also, we also realized, and I'd come out of marketing uh, as well, I mean, you realize that it's a business, you know, and, and you can't go in with some obscure film and think that because you like it or somebody it has some sentimental value that it's going to make sense for a studio To give you money, and in those days, much more money than it would cost today, uh, to do to do this work. So you had to find something that you thought there's an audience for, like you know that we knew there'd be an audience for Spartacus, we knew there'd be an audience for Vertigo, and we you know we knew My Fair Lady was a crowd pleaser and was deteriorating tremendously, and and there was a lot of a lot of uh, uh, sentimental. Attachment to that film by audiences and, and 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 the company that that owned it was concerned about the condition, but that's that was another thing. You just had to find pictures that were were um, worthy, so to speak. I want to um,
1: open this up for questions, but I just uh, as an uh, addendum to that, I think one of the most fascinating things to track over the last 30 years in terms of the availability of films for film historical research and education is that these high-end projects that you were involved in really just creates a context within a lot of other activity goes on. And the amount of work that's being done by archives and uh, students who have gone on to work on film preservation projects is just, it's really taken off. And it really started in this period, I think. Well, as I okay. said,
2: it's, they, once they found out they could make money yeah. at it, they yeah. put money into it. Right. It's, uh, it's, uh, it really, it's, I mean, I hate, I, I don't want to sound cynical, but um, the li- libraries are what really creates the value in movie studios. Um, it's, uh, it's the constant thing that brings in income. Right. And so, oh, maybe we should restore these things and keep them... So that we
0: can And what, keep bringing perhaps in.
1: what are some hidden gems that people don't know that much well, about? Yes. They and think differently. That's your about your <laughs> right? In yeah.
0: 1984, when we, when we released the, these five films, uh, we also sort of mined the Douglas Cirque Library, mm-hmm. which did really well. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, um, and the Preston Sturgis films, which mm-hmm. Universal owned a good bit of because of. They bought the Paramount they Library. They bought the yeah. Paramount mm-hmm. Library. So they had all of these, so we were doing that at the same time as we were doing traviata and heat and dust and and uh, moonlight and all all of these uh, moonlighting not the one that 's out now, but yeah. this was a it's called film, film fromkomovskys yeah, film yeah uh, with Jeremy I- it was jeremy iron right, 's yeah, first yeah, film right, yeah,
2: yeah so, we restored all the Preston Sturgis films, all the Marx Brothers movie, everything that came out of the the hope Crosby, all the <laughs> things that came out of the. Paramount pre forty eight library that we owned, yeah. and you know they're they're not all gems, but they are all movies people want to watch still. Yeah. Yeah. So they it's have value. A, well, yeah. if you want
0: some representation of of the forties, uh, there's I think there's a I don't I think there's a Universal box out of the Preston Sturgis films, and and they're uh, they're really great. I mean there's uh, Sullivan's Travels and uh, yeah. Uh, Sullivan's
2: Sullivan, yeah. Su- Su- Sullivan is the best movie ever made about the movie business, yeah. and uh, the Great McGinty, which might yeah. remind you of our
1: yeah.
0: current
2: political that situation. Way. Oh, yeah, that scary.
0: <laughs>
1: anyway, all right. On that note, let me uh, uh, solicit questions from. Uh, uh, just raise your hand so that the microphone can be brought to you.
0: Well, there's an ambitious climb up there,
2: huh? <laughs> It's a good rake in the theater. Yeah. Right?
0: This is a great theater, by the way. What a wonderful theater. Sound yeah. is great. Yeah.
2: Hello there. Uh, thank you for bringing this today. And I was wondering if all of the elements that you ended up using actually came from the Paramount uh, materials, or did you actually have to reach out and even... Find a part that had to come from a personal print or anything like that well
0: it was we we had a lot of we found a lot of a lot of stuff we the soundtracks were a big find on this uh, but uh, most of it was was accessible uh, a lot of it was see we used the original negative and the separations uh, at, later on we used the original negative the separations and we had digital correction that we could use so you just you know, you just piece it together and uh, and, and do the best you can. And um, as uh, they thought, as the years passed, uh, with digital, that they were would be able to scan it, uh, which they did. I mean, you can do it. And I'll give you an example. You know, scanning a frame is like six cents now. And originally, it was $40 a frame when we did it. So that gives you some idea of how the technology you know, changed over the years. And and you just do the best you can with what you have. And the hardest thing is to say to yourself, I, I'm f- when are we going to ever finish this? Because you just keep thinking, I can tweak this, I can tweak mm-hmm. that. And you just have to figure how much time will it take and how much better will it be as a result of that. And then you just finally have to say, say, uh, enough. Mm. And... Um, uh, you, find, you know, I, I can maybe digress a little bit and tell you some funny story about, you know, when you're going into looking for these these various um, elements. We went into Paramount. They they were very gracious and uh, didn't take care of their films very. They they do a good job now, but back then they were one of the worst. And we went through. They, let they us,
2: sold their library to Universal yeah. for fourteen million dollars, yeah. which made, Wasserman turned around then The next week and sold the television for sixteen, and so basically Universal owns Paramount's library for nothing.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it was. uh, But we found we went into the into the um, wardrobe department and we found that green dress that Judy Barton wears with the polka dots on the top, and I had it hanging. I hung it up in the cutting room. And every every woman that came in to that cutting room wanted to try that dress on. And I thought in retrospect, if I had taken a picture of all the people who Mm -hmm. tried that dress on, it would have made one of those great Tashin books. It would have been been terrific. And we had had that there. And then I also found the portrait of Carlotta that's in the film. Only uh, Vera Miles' head was on it. And Vera Miles was going to play uh, the Kim Novak part before uh, Kim got, got but she it. Got
2: pregnant, you and know. she
0: got pregnant, And she uh, got pregnant, and then Hitchcock got sick in the interim, and, mm. and it turned out she could have done it, but he had already cast Kim, and I had that hanging on the back wall of, uh, of the cutting room. And we, we sort of had had a joke because you see all the mirrors in Vertigo. Every there's a mirror here, and a mirror. every place you go, they're looking at each other. Put that mirror. in our Hitchcock movie, <laughs> yeah. just a
2: reference. We put it.
0: Uh, <laughs> we we had the we had these we were working off movieolas and things. So we had a mirror over one of the movieolas on the wall, so we could see the picture in the back on the back wall of, of, of Vera Miles. But it was and it was very strange because they were building the Jurassic Park ride right across the street from the cutting room we were in, and all day long we heard, da 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 And, and we decided we can't do this. We had, so we would come in and start working at 7, 8 at night and work work until midnight on it sometimes. But anyway. Um, I had a question for both of you guys. So you were talking about some films that... Um, have been lost. Um, so I was wondering if there were any particular films that you um, regret that have been lost or that you would like to work on in the future in the restoration process?
2: I didn't, I didn't hear the whole
0: question. She, she said, uh, I want to know if there's any films out there. Am I right in saying, are there any films you'd like to restore? Yeah, I'd like to restore all of them.
2: But <laughs> there, there are... Each of the studios has a list of the films in its library in order th- that they are in order of preservation because they have limited amount of budget that they'll put in each year X millions of dollars because it costs a lot of money and then you still have to keep stable what you have so that it doesn't get worse um, the uh, the Library of Congress the EFI has a catalog um, of the films in the Library of Congress, uh, the, all all the movies that have been made um, ever in uh, American movies, and the 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 Preservation Society, the one that Faye Kanan and Marty Scorsese mm-hmm. run, um, they're a lobbying organization to the studios for in the or for the films that they want to see preserved. But finally, it's sort of what Jim said earlier. It's the ones they think they can sell to Netflix or to to whatever buyer is out there. Oh, this one has a movie star in it that you've heard of, or this one. Yeah. And things are starting. My, My Fair Lady was not that long ago. I mean, this this was a movie from the '50s, but are there are movies from the '80s. You, before digi- think before movies were made digitally. Estate movies are, have a lot of them are starting to go, mm. and uh, they have to be kept and or restored if they haven't been kept properly.
0: A real gut check is when they're restoring films you restored. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's when you know you're really in trouble.
1: Well, I was just thinking this has been 21 years now since uh, you worked on this film, yeah. and I remember you saying when we spoke. Two decades ago, <laughs> that um, you put a lot of emphasis on preserving your own process of restoration, so that the material would be available. Well, for I, I
0: can say we the, we we made 70 millimeter prints. You know, I can go in a little bit into why large format is such a problem, and that is because you know when, when the when the 70 millimeter films came out in the 50s and and early 60s, mainly in the 50s, they had this these um, roadshow uh, distributions mm-hmm. where at Christmas and Easter and at holiday time, you could go into a theater in Kansas City, in New York, in Texas, and you could see this, and, and they would usually sell tickets in advance. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yes, of course. And, yeah. and that was a big, it was a big event. And uh, uh, the one thing that the studios wanted was they wanted the same film to be up on the screen in Kansas City, As 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 was in San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York or any of the big cities, so what they did was they made the first maybe 300 prints or up to 300 prints off the original negative, which is unheard of because normally you'd do maybe you'd strike six or seven, and and then you'd go to an inner positive and inner negative and inner positive and you'd make you'd make your prints off the new inner negative, and. uh, you wouldn 't be disturbing the original you know piece of film that was closest to the actors at the time, so with a, with, with these films like you know you 'd run in, off the original negative and then uh, in a very short time after there would be go through the machines there 's always going to be a glitch there 's always going to be a problem, and the negative would tear or something would happen and they would repli- so so maybe two weeks after these films were finished, they would replacement Sections in the negative on these large format films, mm, mm. and uh, that was really really a problem because when we went to restore them, we we would tr- you try and, and not go you try and, and go as few generations away as possible, and and if there's a special effect, you're already two two generations away, mm. so you know you, you just you just try and, uh, and 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 use what you can. And uh, now when you scan these films, the process is different. It's cheaper. And as I said before, you know, you could have restored vertigo today uh, for less money, and it would probably look better. What the shelf life is, I, I don't know. But I'm, I'm really not up on my scanning and my com- well, there, computer Well I,
2: I know there's a problem because I, I, the, the, uh, the Academy and the... Uh, NAPPI have come up with some new digital standard for preservation, which I'm not technically competent enough to, to comment on. But I know that there's something in digital that we're about to lose if we don't adopt some standard. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well,
0: it's it's a, I don't know specifically, but it's a con- but the whole the whole concept is changing. changing Every, it, it, right. Look at look at where we came. We started doing this in the, in 1990 and uh you know uh we if it were black and white, you could do a fine grain, and that would cost maybe about thirty or forty thousand dollars and now for you you would run it through a scanner and then go through the normal post and and you'd get a you get a pretty good you know you can clean it you 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 can get um, dirt out uh, off the negatives you can you can um, uh, um you know, pixel clean it by you know by by just uh, covering the 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 damage with uh, by condensing or adding pixels to it. Uh, so that's changing. I mean, the you you know now you can buy a 4K TV set. You know that you you know you can go 6K on some. And to the point where I can give you an example of I, I was in the academy at one one night and we went to see Singing in the Rain. And uh, it had been you know just pixeled to death, and to me, it took away a lot of the I mean it was great to see see it as clearly as you did, but it was almost like a sitcom. It was too clean. it wasn't you know it took all the the cinema out of out of the film. And then they programmed um, grain. You can program grain into into a frame now. So after you've... Total- that's what
2: that's what they did. I don't know if anybody has seen uh, um, the film about Jackie uh, Kennedy with Natalie yeah. Portman, mm. which was shot seemingly almost entirely in close-up um, of her face. But they had to fix it a little bit because there was so much close-up, so many... Uh, they had to make her skin look um, look different in, just in order to be able to shoot it in that close up for a two-hour movie, if anybody if anybody has seen it.
1: Working for two years on a restoration of this kind and making decision after decision about every single uh, cut and how you're going to match the sound to it, um, what is it like then to be away from it for a while and see it again as a film in which the psychology of it might... Have a certain kind of impact that the material work on it uh, disallows uh,
0: I, you know it 's really strange i don 't think i 've ever looked at vertigo without thinking about the problems that we had in certain scenes you know certain you know, I, 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 you know when when you 're doing a photochemical restoration and even, you know even more so maybe with a digital restoration you, you, the color 's got to be right mm. you know and, and You know, there's stories of *Gone with the Wind* and how the various various incarnations, the color changed. And I, at one point, saw the last print uh, that was color approved by David Selznick in 1954. It was a print made in 1954, and and to me, that's always in my head been what *Gone with the Wind* should look like. Now, there have been there's the the 50th anniversary. There's lots of video, you know, restorations. There was you know some that TNT did, and 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 they they didn't really ever get it. You know they didn't really get it because it was a three-strip film where the dresses were the velvet was so rich. You know the green against the black, and you could see the black on black, and you could actually see the the satin part of a lapel against a black sort of grosgrain fabric or something. And and you see all that, and and, and then you, you uh, see people's interpretation of it. You know, when we were doing Vertigo, I couldn't. We couldn't get the scene right in front of the uh, when she comes out of the apartment building because the building was. And she shot it in the sun. It was very bright, and we were trying to figure out how can we get something to register on the frame. And I was talking to Bob, and, when they, and we said, well, what about the the, the Jaguar? And we figured that if we went we, we went to Jaguar and got the color uh, paint samples of what that color was, and once we had that that register of what green that was and what what the, what, the, what the car looked like and we got that right, everything else on the frame fell into place because we had an anchor on that particular shot. But every time I see that, I think of those paint chips that we had every time I see See the um, the shots of uh, the close-ups on Kim in the in that red robe, uh, or the you know the the scenes that were off in this, which are much actually much better in other prints. But you know I don't know for what reasons this was came out like this because every print's different. You never never really know. Uh, but the um, the opening scene uh, was was a little dark and. And there, there are there are, there are, there are, are um, so many instances in the in the flower shop, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where there are multicolors and bright colors. And each character in in Hitchcock's movie has a color sort of assigned to them. You know, Barbara Bel was yellow, and Kim Novak was green. And you saw the green when she came out of uh, Ernie's, and then you see the green in the dress, mm-hmm. and all of those tones. So he he played with that all the time and you keep that in the back of your mind and when you're doing these when you're trying to register this stuff you 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 try and 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 do that but i always always see scenes that that are uh, i remember every single sometimes it took three weeks to do one scene and some days you'd be lucky and you'd get two or or three. You ask
2: yourself why did she keep the necklace yeah, <laughs> well, I didn't
0: think it was that nice a necklace. Yeah. <laughs> Carlotta didn't have much did she?
1: Well, well, thank you so much for thinking about the paint chip so that we don't have to, and uh, for being here today to talk about um, your work on this film. Appreciate
0: it a lot. So maybe we'll do this again another time. I years. hope so. I hope we will. Um, and years. also, if anybody wants, wants to see
1: particularly maybe a film student who wants to see what a film strip looks like. Uh, uh, Jim has up here both 35- and 70-millimeter strips that he can show that are involved in the restoration of the film, and we'll be having a reception out in the lobby. Thanks for coming.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.